You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and today I'm here with Stephen Sloman from Brown University. He's the author of this book, The Knowledge Illusion. And I just want to say, I really enjoyed this book. I was just talking to someone just a few minutes ago, and, and I was saying the great thing about this book, as opposed to, we read a lot of business books in business school, and a lot of them are kind of like magazine articles on steroids. But when you read a book like this, it's like a hundred academic articles boiled down into a book and then run through a readability filter. And so it's like the perfect kind of book for me. I just love these books. So welcome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I've got to say that I just can't get through most business books. There's a kind of sensationalism to them that just rubs me the wrong way. And as you say, the baud rate is just way too slow. Yeah, well, I feel a lot of business books are written primarily to establish some kind of credibility for the speaking circuit, right? But for academics, sometimes writing for the public audience it's not necessarily something that they're used to doing. And so when people put the effort into it and make it work, it's really appreciated. It's a huge challenge. It's really hard. We worked really hard at it, but I enjoy it. It's actually a way to get your ideas really, really clear. It sort of has the same advantage that teaching has in that regard, that when you're expressing things to people with no background, then you yourself have to be really clear about it. And so you learn a lot that way. Well, I think it was Einstein who said, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, then you probably don't understand it. But I think this is really in line with the main theme of your book, which is not a new one. It's, I think, grounded in, you quote Plato quite a few times in the book. It's really all about knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know, both as a way of understanding how people think and also kind of a bit of a recommendation to people. So the book is not only a work of cognitive science and anthropology, but it's really also, I think, a guide for the perplexed. Is that your intention? It's almost like a self-help book tacked onto a really deep work of cognitive science and, and anthropology. Well, I'm really glad that you read it that way. It was certainly our intention, although it doesn't have any of the features of a self-help book. And we don't do that business book thing of having the 10 top ways to change your life. There are certainly lessons, but the lessons are between the lines. Yeah, I might be a little weird. I think Plato and Kierkegaard wrote self-help books. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, people have suggested that we turn it into a self-help book, that we write another book, which is the self-help version. But I haven't found the energy to do that. But there are definitely all kinds of lessons that I've taken away and that fortunately some others have too. A lot of the lessons are about humility. Yeah. And I think the, the main theme of your book is this illusion of explanatory depth. And you repeatedly come back to that concept and explore all of the implications of it. And the example you start with, I mean, I loved it, was asking people, do you understand how a toilet works? I have to say, when I read this, I, I said, of course, I understand how a toilet works. You know, <laughs> you, you pull the lever and the lever lifts something up and then the water goes down magically and, and that's how it works, right? But those sorts of exercises really, I think, serve to highlight the motivation behind the book. And so could you just kind of summarize what exactly is that and, and where did it come from, at least the academic research into this? Sure. So 
The phenomenon you're describing, which in cognitive science circles is known as the illusion of explanatory depth, but we refer to it as the knowledge illusion, was first demonstrated by Leon Rosenblatt and Frank Kyle, a couple of psychologists at Yale. What they did was took a bunch of simple artifacts, common objects like toilets, also ballpoint pens, zippers, and asked people how well they understood them. And people felt they understood how they worked pretty well. So on a one to seven rating scale, they wrote down numbers like four or five on average. And then they said, okay, explain, and explain in as much detail as you possibly can how this thing actually works. And what they discovered and what the participants themselves discovered is that they didn't really understand how they worked and they couldn't generate meaningful explanations. So when Rosenblatt and Kyle again asked them, now, how well do you think you understand how this thing works? People's judgments were lower. In other words, the act of trying to generate an explanation punctured people's illusion of understanding, their knowledge illusion. They realized they didn't understand as well as they thought they had, and so they lowered their rating of their own understanding. My colleagues and I took this basic procedure and applied it in the political domain. So we asked people how well they understood how a bunch of policies would work. And then after people told us they thought they understood pretty well, we said, again, please explain in as much detail as you can. And that also lowered their sense of understanding. What we found in the political domain is that it also lowered the extremity of their attitude. They realized that they should have less confidence in their opinion than they had. In other words, by asking them to explain, we reduced the polarization of the group to some degree. People became less extremist. Right. I just recently uh, interviewed Don Moore. We talked about overconfidence. And one of the positives that came out of that was that there is hope and you can actually become better calibrated through coaching, through learning. And well, let's say there are some people that are more coachable than others. Did you find there are personality differences, people who are more willing to acknowledge or learn the limits of their knowledge than others? There are certainly big differences in that. I mean, one thing we have found very clearly is that there are some people who don't demonstrate the knowledge illusion as much as the general public does, probably because they try to generate explanations when you first ask them how well they understand. So there are people who are reflective. There are simple tests of how reflective people are. Shane Frederick at Yale Business School has come up with this very simple test called the cognitive reflection test that's kind of fun. And what the test measures is the degree to which people rely on their gut response or whether they think before they speak, essentially. And people who think before they speak which is at most 30% of the population, also try to generate an explanation when you say, how well do you understand how this thing works, and discover that they can't. And so their understanding judgments are low even before you explicitly ask them to generate an explanation. What I found interesting about that was that these system two thinkers or reflective folks, there's a whole bunch of other characteristics that are correlated with them, including lower religious belief, 
better self-control, a couple other things that, that aren't strictly related to what we might think of as rational versus emotional. Yeah, no, this test is correlated with all kinds of things, whether people are willing to delay reward. So will they wait an extra day to get a larger amount of money versus a smaller amount of money immediately is related to how averse they are to risk. It's related to their willingness to do multiplication to come to a correct answer, as opposed to just generating the first intuitive thing that comes to mind. My favorite is that it's related to whether they prefer dark chocolate or milk chocolate. Right. Can you guess how that works? <laughs> yeah, but I'm not sure I understand why. I mean, I, I noticed that myself in the choices of my dinner guests, but any theory there? Why? When you're reflective, then I guess you appreciate all the subtleties and complexities of the dark chocolate, as opposed to that sweet, milky hit that milk chocolate gives you. And I think it's that you kind of enjoy the process of thought more. It does more for you. I wonder if it also means French wine over California wine. <laughs> well, I'm not a wine connoisseur, but I know that Californians would be really offended to hear that there aren't wines in California that are just as good as really good French wine. So I don't think I want to go there. I'll alienate too many people. Right. One of the things that I really liked in the book is you did a bit of a review of how cognitive science has changed over the years. And in the early days, there were a lot of people like Turing who really had this model of the brain as computer-like. And of course, this was in the early days of computers, but there's still plenty of people that have this, this belief. And I liked how you, you pointed out that if the brain was like a computer, it would be a really crappy computer. It only has one gig of, of storage which actually sounds to me like a lot because my first laptop only had 10 meg hard drive. So I would have been impressed <laughs> if you told me this back in the 80s that it has one gig of storage. But right now, I'm, I'm not very impressed. And now we've seen that, that that view of the brain has has more or less been abandoned, I think, by most cognitive scientists in a couple different ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I was actually surprised a bit by the ontology of, of cognitive science that you laid out. There are a couple of different issues. One has to do with memory capacity, and the other has to do with the nature of mental processing. So you're absolutely right that cognitive science originated with the idea that the mind was effectively a computer, what's often called a von Neumann computer or a Turing machine type computer, one that processes information serially, one step at a time in the way that most modern computers do. And I think that that view has largely been abandoned for multiple reasons. One of them is that it turns out that you can show that the brain doesn't operate in that serial fashion, but rather operates through massive parallel processing. The best models of memory and reasoning and perception and problem solving all have this character that rather than processing information step by step, what people seem to do is to take huge amounts of information and figure out how they constrain the solution that we're looking for. So 
when we're thinking about a scene, we observe something and we want to make sense of it, we don't sort of consider hypotheses one by one, but rather we take all the evidence and manage somehow to integrate it in parallel. So there's lots of formal ways to do that these days. And we're using modern computers in order to simulate that process. But that kind of massive parallel computation is just a very different sort of computation. That's one direction. Well, when you describe that, it sounds in some sense like something that's an improvement on the old way of computing and processing, but it could also be seen as a way of dealing with limitations, right? So when you talk about the way in which people process information within a narrow window, the way in which they use shortcuts, the way in which they use heuristics like optic flow and so forth, to what extent are those heuristics that are adaptations to the limited capacities? And to what extent are those ways of unlocking new ways of doing things that wouldn't be possible if you had a more simplistic mechanism? Well, they're both. There's no question. Whenever you have a, a new paradigm, a new technique for doing something, the reason that it gains favor is because it's useful. It does new things. It does things faster. It does things better. But it's also the case that invariably you do other things not quite as well. And hopefully there are fewer things that you do poorly and more things that you do well. So I mentioned that there are a couple of different directions. There are actually several different directions that cognitive science has gone beyond the computer metaphor. But one is definitely worth mentioning because you just brought it up. So I've talked about the sort of massive parallel nature of mental computation, but the other new direction that cognitive science has gone is to appreciate that when we think about processing information, when we think about thinking, we have to incorporate the body and the world into the process of thought. So this is really quite a different notion than, than massive parallel computation. But the idea is that like kids use their fingers to do arithmetic and adults use paper and whiteboards to do mathematics and people will use their musical instrument, not just to make music, but to actually think through the process of making music. So we take advantage of the world constantly when we're thinking. I think the way in which you define human thinking is really as some kind of preparation for action. And the way I've understood cognitive science and the way it's changed is to emphasize the way in which humans use emotions. And emotions are primarily mechanisms that prepare you for action. But you don't really emphasize the emotional side of things. You emphasize the causal reasoning as a way of contrasting with this computational view. That's right. I don't want to discount emotion well, I guess I do want to a little bit because I think it's a term that people throw out a lot without really knowing what it means. But when I say we rely on our bodies to think, partly what that means is we rely on affective responses that are produced by our bodies. And so you can see that when you run away from something because your body reacts with fear or because your body reacts with disgust 
or whether you go towards something because your body reacts with love or you perceive beauty or something. I mean, these are all, I'll say, affective responses that are at least as much part of your body as they are part of your thought process. But they guide your thought process. So part of the story here has to do with thinking about how the body and also the physical world are involved in determining what we attend to, what we conclude, how we actually process information. You're absolutely right that we do focus on causal reasoning. I mean, that's actually what I've been studying for the last 15, 20 years. And the reason is because I do believe that understanding the causal mechanisms that make the world operate is really what thought does. That sort of is what serves as the infrastructure of human thought. So people have come up with theories of human thought that are based on computer processing or based on logical analysis. These days, people love probability theory as a formal language for talking about how thought works. Personally, I think the right way to think about much of thought is in terms of understanding how the world works, the causal processes that make the world go. And much of the argument is actually exactly what you mentioned, that if we're going to understand what good action is, we're made to act well, to change our environments in such a way that we do better. And it's causal reasoning that's the best tool to do that because it predicts what the effects of our actions will be. Yeah, and I think you described human brain as sort of inference machines, which I really liked. I teach a course on data and decisions, and I kind of think of it in my head as a course on inference rather than a course on statistics. But humans are really good at inferring causation relative to, let's say, computers in many ways, but they also are susceptible to some flaws. They're not perfect in their inference making. Neither are people. (laughs) Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned, which I've always found interesting, is that people often need stories or, or narratives to make sense of these causal mechanisms. And the way I'm familiar with it is with the ways on selection task and how if you kind of attach a story to it, people get it wrong when it's propositional logic. But then when you attach some kind of story to it, then people generally do pretty well with it. Well, in the case of the Wayson selection task, it has to be the right kind of story, a story that is about permitting something or human obligation that causes people to do well. But that's exactly right. I don't think I'm saying anything that's terribly novel if I say I think narrative structure is a really key element of how people think. And part of the reason for that is because narratives carry causal information. I mean, if you're telling a story, you're generally describing a chronology of events, but you're doing so by having a bunch of characters, and those characters have motivations, right? What are motivations? Well, they're causes of behavior. And the characters take actions in order to change the world in some way that has consequences. And the consequence is a causal effect. So narratives are very human, understandable ways to understand the causal processes that govern the world. Usually they're focused on the causality that governs humans, but not always. There's science fiction that's about 
other kinds of causal processes or processes that govern war, interactions among nations or common topics in narratives. So yeah, I am one of those people who think narratives are really important for understanding human behavior. But there seem to be certain types of narrative archetypes that gel better and that do a better job of getting encoded than others. And if you try to deviate from these these archetypes to explain something, it, it generally doesn't stick quite as well. You had some really nice examples where people were will push on the thermostat much more aggressively when they're really cold, thinking that this is going to somehow make the thermostat work harder. So that's one of the causal models we have that doesn't directly reflect the way the world actually works. If we want an extreme result, then we feel like we need an extreme cause. And in the case of thermostats, or, you know, another way to think about it is if your shower's too cold and you want to increase the amount of hot water, we have a tendency to make it really hot and go back and forth rather than just sort of inching along. So one of the ways we try to control the world, one of the things that constrains our causal beliefs is this tendency to think that large inputs will lead to large outputs and small inputs will lead to small outputs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people probably also have difficulty dealing with exponential impacts. Most of what you experience in the world is is linear and it's very difficult to make sense of exponential things. And aren't we experiencing that today during the pandemic? Yeah. It's just a perfect example of exponential increase. It's really hard to control. Well, nonlinearity is in the sense that something might be good in, in small doses, but bad in, in large doses. That's also something that people find difficult to digest. Mm -hmm. So you also discuss a little bit about good old-fashioned AI. So I teach a course on data science, and so I enjoyed this discussion. When I talk about how we've moved on from good old-fashioned AI, I usually emphasize the, the machine learning side of things and how inference is done more or less by just whether it's reinforcement learning or whether it's more mainstream machine learning. That's what's the big innovation here. You really emphasize something different, right, when you're talking about how we've moved on from good old-fashioned AI. Well, much of our discussion of good old-fashioned AI was in the context of the things that we've already talked about in a way, that massively parallel computation is a different kind of computation than the oldest, most traditional kind of AI. And indeed, specialists in AI recognize that. Deep learning is the latest and greatest in AI. And if you're a computer scientist worth your salt, you're thinking about massive parallel computation a lot because the latest systems, the systems that can beat the best chess players and the best Go players all have this massive parallel property. Deep learning machines, which are these most modern, fabulous machines, do operate by massive parallel computation. And then the other thing we talk about is the fact that this appeal to computation via the world, as opposed to all internal computation, that you also see that move in AI. So a lot of modern robots, rather than planning a long series of moves, will just make a move and then respond to the environment in order to get to where they're going. 
and for lots of activities like navigating difficult terrain, for instance, that turns out to be a much more effective way to build a machine. So you talk a lot about the difference between humans and, and other animals. When evolutionary biologists talk about this, they, they emphasize culture. But I think sometimes when they think about culture, they're thinking about it kind of inherited knowledge, right? So my ancestor put her hand on the hot stove and, and got burned and so then passes that on to me and says, hey, don't you do it. But I think what you emphasize is really more the connected nature of knowledge, really how division of labor allows people to really only directly acquire a very small subset of the knowledge that they need in order to navigate the world. And they can more or less outsource a huge part of their brain to their fellow humans. Talk a little bit about that and then how those fellow humans also become the world. And you can outsource your knowledge to the environment. You can outsource your knowledge to technology. That's right. So actually, for me, this is really the important insight of the book. I do have a co-author on this book. I'm not sure we've mentioned yeah. him yet, Phil Fernback. And I think Phil found the issues about ignorance and knowing what you don't know the most exciting observations. But for me, what has really changed my world and my understanding of thought is this observation that we don't think inside our skull, but rather we depend on other people to think, that we live in a community of knowledge and the mind really exists in that community. So the reason I think we experience this knowledge illusion, this sense that we understand things better than we do is because other people understand things and we inherit the knowledge that's sitting in other people's heads. And as we go through life, we're constantly making use of other people's knowledge without being aware that we're doing so. So whenever we use a piece of technology, there's a lot of knowledge that went into that piece of technology. And we don't worry or think about the fact that all of this thought and effort and memory went into developing this thing. We just use it. Is the clickbait summary of this that we're getting dumber because we don't need to know as much or we're getting smarter because we have this deep well that we can dip into? So earlier you pointed out this conclusion of Thomas Landauer, this cognitive scientist who a couple of decades ago did this back-of-the-envelope calculation and figured that the size of human memory is only one gigabyte. And I think that there's some truth to that. We have very limited capacity to encode and store symbolic information. And I'm not sure how much that has changed over the years. I wouldn't be shocked to learn that our ancestors during the evolutionary eras, had the same memory capacity, the same ability to process information that we have today. There's just a lot more information out there. And so maybe we know more, but clearly we know much less relative to the amount that's out there. And so in a sense, that's really the, the problem of being a thinker, having enough of a sense of what's out there, that we know what the solvable problems are and what the non-solvable problems are. So the days of being the, the Renaissance man or Renaissance woman, is those days are over, right? Well, I think so. You can't know everything worth knowing. 
Yeah. I have a couple of friends who really impress me with how much they know, but even they turn out to be wrong sometimes. So there's some kind of co-evolution happening, right? Because if you have the capacity to lean on others, then you don't need to really fend for yourself, right? We don't. We certainly don't know how to fix cars, and we may have known that 30 years ago. I certainly don't. I mean, I have to look at Google Maps just to go across the street. I have to look at my calendar to figure out what I'm doing in an hour. I certainly didn't do this 20 years ago. So that's why I think a lot of people think that they're getting dumber because they're parking this knowledge. I think there was a study that said that if you're told ahead of time that you'll be able to reference back whatever it is that you're looking at, then you remember less because you know that you're going to be able to reference it in some other way. There's all sorts of data that's consistent with that. Waiters at restaurants will remember orders until they're served and then they forget them. It turns out that if you have people do some Google searches and then ask them to estimate their general knowledge, they feel much smarter than if they haven't just done some Google searches because they've experienced easy, quick access to information. So if we follow the logic, I mean, Adam Smith talked about the benefits of division of labor. Of course, you know, the more specialized we have people digging into different areas of knowledge, the more complex we can build out our entire body of knowledge. And so it would seem that the world really is going to favor specialists. But I think also in, in the book, you, you make the point that the skill that really is valuable in today's world is some knowledge of where you can go to get what you need to know, which seems to me to be the, the skill of a more of a generalist than anything else. Yeah. I wouldn't say that the world favors specialists. I guess the way I put it is that there is a demand for specialization that there's never been before, because it turns out that whenever you study pretty much anything, it always has this fractal pattern, right? There's always more to know. And so there are untold depths to any issue, to anything that we, we study, and there's a demand for people who plumb those depths. But that doesn't mean that that's the only job out there. We have to think of knowledge as sort of hierarchical. We all have enough knowledge about physics to know that if we hit someone on the head with a pipe, we're going to cause damage. And if we drop a thin glass on the floor, it's likely to shatter. So there's a common course level of knowledge that we all have access to, and that allows us to function. And more than anything, it allows us to communicate with others. And it also allows us to know where to go, or it helps us know where to go to find more information when it's needed. Right. So we all have to have fairly abstract course knowledge, and we also have to have people who can translate specialists' knowledge. We also have to have people who sort of have middling levels of knowledge of multiple domains, like project managers, who aren't necessarily doing the detailed work, but are putting it together at a slightly higher level. But nevertheless, it's about a particular problem, a particular widget that's being manufactured or whatever. So I think there's lots of demands in society for different kinds of knowledge. There's certainly lots of demand for specialists. 
Right. But it's clear that the more specialized you become, the more important it is that the connectivity across the different specialists is functioning. And I think you mentioned that the average number of authors on a academic papers has been consistently growing over the years. And that really means that for most advancements to happen, it really requires more and more collaboration. And the notion of the, the lone explorer in an ivory tower making great discoveries that maybe those days are over. And if that's the case, then the ability to collaborate seems to be a skill that is increasingly important. And you mentioned that everyone goes around studying general intelligence and uh, employers, I know for a fact, look at general intelligence. The companies here in Silicon Valley say that it's really the number one predictor of success, apart from, say, a work sample that they can look at. But you really say that the capacity to collaborate, the capacity to figure out what one knows, what one doesn't know, and then go and retrieve what it is that one needs to, to get in order to combine with your own knowledge, that's really probably the most important skill. Do you think employers are, are beginning to look at this? Is there a way of measuring it? Because I think in the book, you really said it's a whole lot easier to measure the performance of teams than it is to measure the performance of individuals in those teams. I'm not plugged enough into the business world to know what employers are, are looking for. And I suspect that they're biased to looking for people who seem to have lots of horsepower. But the evidence is clear that that's not the only trait that makes someone effective, that being a good team player can be at least as important and often more important. And I do know that there are people in the business world who are very aware of this. One thing we discuss in the book is some venture capital firms that aren't willing to fund ideas, but rather they fund teams mm -hmm. because they know that it's the quality of a team that matters. And there are people at business schools who are studying this. There's a fair amount of evidence now that... If you want to predict the effectiveness of a team, you just can't do it by looking at the horsepower of the individuals, right? Like the IQ of the individuals is just not a good predictor of how well the team's going to do. But things like how often they take conversational turns turns out to be a better predictor. I saw some recent work showing that the ability of team members to be able to read the expression in someone's eyes turns out to be a really good predictor of how much they'll contribute to a team. So empathy, working with others. One thing we talk about in the book is this notion of shared intentionality. So it does seem like there are anthropologists and psychologists who argue that what makes humans special is our ability to share intentionality with others. That is, to work towards common goals as a unit. So that, for instance, if you're carrying something with someone else and that person suddenly stumbles, then you'll immediately do what's necessary to save the package. You'll compensate. And it turns out that that kind of working together towards common goals is something that is unique to human beings. No other animal is capable of it in the same way, and certainly no machine is capable of it. Right. I recall reading something about how dogs have the capacity to at least gaze follow. 
Do we see any evidence that dogs can infer intentionality in any way? So my feelings on this are a little mixed. Like It's very clear that of all the mammals, dogs may come closest to humans, right? They may be better than chimpanzees, even though chimpanzees are much more closely related to us genetically. Dogs are pretty good, right? They're very social animals. But I don't think they're as good as humans. You can't decide with your dog that you're going to solve a puzzle and have the dog do part of it while you do the other part of it. And then, you know, together when your parts merge, figure out what the best way is to cooperate. So dogs have some very specialized skills, but they don't have the skills that humans do. Having said that, I do want to point out that I often feel like the human ability to share intentionality, to understand what others are thinking and work with them. I think the human ability is sometimes overrated. I'm constantly struck by other people's inability and look, my own inability to really appreciate where other people are coming from, what they're trying to achieve. It's really hard. And humans may be better at it than any other machine or any other animal, but there's still a long way to go. And the people who are really good at it, well, they should be valued. And often they're very successful. Is part of that related to physical presence and and physical observability with all the discussions about remote work and people communicating in ways other than the visual or the being in physical proximity? Is that going to impair our ability to infer intentionality, do you think? Yes, I do. You hear all these stories of great politicians who can walk into a room and read it and identify the goals that everybody in the room has. And it's very clear that to do that really well, you have to be sensitive to all kinds of cues that go beyond language and go beyond, you know, simple two-dimensional image from the chest up. I'm sure it is limiting us, yeah. So you're interested in how we outsource knowledge creation and how we lean on others to make sense of the world. I teach behavioral finance, and a lot of that is really all about to what extent you should weight your private signals versus the signals of of others. And you had some great examples in the book about people who will lean on Google MD, for instance, as a source for diagnostic wisdom. To what extent is the wisdom of the crowd susceptible to groupthink and stakes rather than aggregating these different opinions to come up with something that's sensible? There is a uh, review of our book in The New Yorker, and the writer made the point that one implication of our discussion was that I might feel I understand something, not because I understand it, but because the people around me understand it. So let's say... I think I understand why an election turned out the way it turned out. And I don't know the details, but the people around me, they seem to have this strong sense of understanding about whether the election was a fraud or not. But it turns out that the reason they have this strong sense of understanding is because the people around them have a strong sense of understanding. And those people have a strong sense of understanding because the people around them do. So... I certainly think it's possible that you can have a whole community that feels they understand something, not because there's any basis to what they think, 
but because everybody around them has this sense of understanding. The sense of understanding is contagious. We're sort of tribal at the most fundamental cognitive level. I mean, in my mind, that's really the heart of our book. The observation that at the most fundamental level of thought, we're tribal. And we just have to look around us, the political world, to see how tribal we are. But it's generally thought of in sort of emotional or purely social terms. I think it's actually true of the very process of thought. So, yeah, it can lead to all kinds of error and mistakes and conspiracy theorizing and ideology and beliefs about magic and even, you know, some religious belief that's based simply on the fact that you're living in a group that assumes this point of view, that assumes a set of beliefs. And being a member of a group is often the most important thing to us. And so we assimilate what our group believes. You have some great examples of the soccer team that allowed the fans to decide on the on the play calls, which kind of ended <laughs> disastrously. Yeah, I love that one. Kind of reminds me of California. Where was that? It was that Sweden. It was a Scandinavian country, as I recall. Yeah. But yeah, they decided to crowdsource the coaching of the team, and the team never did worse. Right. <laughs> Well, in California, we crowdsource legislation to people through referendums. I think we kind of get the same idea. That's a particular Californian problem, yes. So if you're going to outsource your knowledge to the crowd, you need to pick the right crowd. In your book, you talk about expertise and how you need to be able to recognize expertise. And you certainly want to rely on expertise. But when there's competition among experts, this creates some problems. Yeah. A lot of what we reason about isn't the substance area that we're making a decision about, but it's rather who to believe. Should I believe the red team or should I believe the blue team? Because I certainly don't know enough to know whether we should invade Iraq or invade Afghanistan or how much money we should give to relieve people suffering from the economic depression caused by the pandemic. These are incredibly complicated questions, right? I don't have an answer, but people claim to, people who claim to know things. And so the best I can really do is reason about whose opinion I should take seriously. And it turns out that that's hard and important. So there are issues of faith and trust that becomes central to belief. Belief becomes a matter of faith to some degree. Faith in one person, one source, one expert over another. I think that takes us back to education. So we're both educators, and at the end of the day, we have to think carefully about what it is that we're, we're trying to transmit to our students. And I think you, you offered quite a few ideas about that. You know, when I meet my students 20 years after they've graduated and I ask them what they learned, I very rarely get anybody telling me that they, they learned how to discount cash flows or they learned how to test for statistical significance or anything like that. We sometimes get responses like, I learned when to dig into details and, and when to just look at a high level, when to go microscopic, when to go macroscopic, when to rely on my own research and when to lean on others. What are you think the key skills that people today need to have, given that we are relying so much on knowledge generated by others and we're relying so much on technology to do so much of the memory and the processing for us? That's a great question. I think there 
are several of them. I mean, one I've already mentioned in a way, you mentioned too, which is knowing how to determine whether a source is credible or not. So what are the criteria for evaluating the credibility of expertise? And part of that is very subtle. It's like, what kind of language is going to convince me that someone is telling the truth? Part of it is just is not difficult. It's like credentials. But actually, in my mind, a lot of it is being able to appreciate that someone doesn't know things, right? So someone who's willing to admit their lack of knowledge is a good source, is a good cue to their credibility. But to get back to your question, I think that one thing we learn at school is what the space of knowledge looks like. We might not learn enough biology and enough physics and enough astronomy and enough psychology to be experts in all of them, but we've learned that they are fields that exist. So I don't know anything about gene editing, but I know that there are biologists who are able to edit genes. I know that they were able to describe the coronavirus genetically very early and that that was really important. I can't say much more than that, but even that is enough to give me a different feeling about the value of vaccination, for instance, or how seriously I should take vaccination as a treatment or as a prevention for disease. So I think just sort of understanding the landscape of knowledge is really important. The other thing I think is really important is having examples of really well-worked-out thought processes. So when I learned calculus, for instance, I was blown away by seeing how you could take a couple of ideas and in this principled way, right, this very principled, systematic way, develop this incredible theory. It was one of the most beautiful things I had ever experienced. Now, I don't remember it. Like, I can no longer derive or integrate an equation. But what it left me with is a sense of what it means to do something right. And it gave me a respect for mathematicians. It gave me a respect for science. It gave me a respect for serious conclusions that are drawn by engineers, because I, I understand the almost perfection of certain sorts of techniques. So I don't need to actually understand how a toilet works. I just need to have a sense of wonder about that toilet and exactly a firm understanding of the limits of my knowledge. Exactly. And if I don't have time to figure it out, I, I know how to call a plumber. Well, exactly. You also need a phone number of a good plumber. That's, that's really the trick. Yeah. Maybe to wrap up, you mentioned this idea of jigsaw theory of knowledge, right? Which is bringing together insight from different areas, bringing together knowledge from different people. It's really all about making sure that you can fit them together to solve whatever problem it is that you're trying to solve or to make whatever inference it is that you need to make. Do you see your career as, as really an embodiment of this jigsaw theory of knowledge? <laughs> well, that's a really interesting question. I guess I do, in a way, in the sense that when I was young in high school and in college, I was never the best 
at anything, but I was always okay at most things. And I do think I chose a career which allowed me to take advantage of that. So I do something that involves a little bit of computation and some writing and some philosophizing, some understanding of political science and economics. And I don't know very much about any of them, but I know a little bit. And I do think that what I have to offer is to sort of aggregate those little bits of knowledge. Yeah, that's a great insight about me. I'm going to have to hire you as my psychologist or something. Well, for those people out there, when they're applying for jobs, it's now okay to put on your cover letter. I know a little bit about a lot of things and I'm okay at a lot of things. It's, <laughs> that's going to be the new <laughs> ideal candidate. Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much, Stephen, for speaking today. I just want to remind everybody that the book you co-authored with Phil Fernback is really an awesome book. I highly recommend it. Grab it, read it on a plane, read it by the poolside. Forget about those thrillers. Just read this one. It's definitely a thriller you'll enjoy. So thanks so much. Well, thanks so much, Greg. This has been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.